Well, good afternoon, everyone. We are in the middle of Mark's Gospel, and in chapter 10, especially regarding receiving the kingdom. So it's Mark chapter 10, and we're going to be looking at verses 17 to 31, and it's found on page 1165 of the Pew Bible. Last week we considered how we are to receive the kingdom of God like a little child. Well, what is it that children have that qualify them for the kingdom of God? Well, it's the fact that they have nothing. They are weak. They are dependent. They don't look to their own resources. They look to your resources. Well, in a similar way, we are to come to Christ empty-handed, not bringing anything, for we have nothing that would qualify us. We come trusting Christ, then ours is the kingdom of God. Well, in today's passage, we consider a man who did rely on himself to receive the kingdom, and we will see how Jesus enables him to see uh, that he's trusting not in God, but that he's trusting in his wealth. So let's read Mark's Gospels, chapter 10, and we'll read verses 17 to 31. Listen, this is God's word. Now, as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. Then Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly I say to you, There is no one who has left house, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake and the gospels, who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. 
Well, what a great question that our passage begins with. What shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Or what shall I do to receive the kingdom of God? I wonder if you surveyed the people of Bloomington, what would they say in answer to this question? Well, one yard sign that seems to be the measure of goodness in Bloomington surely is, we believe love is love, science is real, Black lives matter, water is life, no human being is illegal, feminism is for everyone, kindness is everything. That is the standard of goodness here in Bloomington. Your standard might be somewhat different. Possibly it's, I go to church every week, I read my Bible every day, I've been baptized, I've lived a good and upright life, I don't steal, I don't lie. I treat others better than I treat myself. But in essence, your standard is no different than the standard of Bloomington. It is also a trust in yourself. And that's what we see with this man that we meet in Mark chapter 10. And so I want you to notice that you are to receive the kingdom of God, not by trusting in your wealth, but trusting in Jesus Christ. He alone will provide you treasures in heaven and true treasures here on earth. So firstly, notice it is right for you to doubt yourself. Verse 17. So our passage begins with this man running up to Jesus, falling on his knees. Now later we see in Mark's description that this man is rich, he's morally upright, a respectable man. Matthew in his gospel tells us that he is young, and Luke in his gospel tells us that he is a ruler. So this man, he has everything going for him. He's young, he's rich, he's powerful. He would be respected and admired. And yet we see that this man is vulnerable. He runs up to Jesus. He falls on his knees. That's not normal behavior for a rich young ruler. You would have expected him to walk up confidently before Jesus, assured of himself. And notice what he says to Jesus. Good teacher, What shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? This man has confidence in himself, and yet it's not complete. He's looking for something more. He wants assurance. And we'll see that he is morally upright, and yet clearly he knows that's not enough. He falls on his knees as a sign of showing how desperate he is. Well, what is his concern? Well, he wants to know what he must do to inherit eternal life how he can gain God's forgiveness, how he can be acceptable to a holy God. Surely, this is the most important question. Unlike the trick questions that Jesus had received from the Pharisees, here was a genuine question from someone who is being sincere, someone who is troubled. Possibly because we're so familiar with this account that we look down on this man. But if you were there at that time, You would have admired him. You would have wanted him in your church. You would have wanted him to be your friend. He is the type of person that you would want to be like. And yet even this person who has accomplished so much, who has it all, he knows that it's not enough. He wants to do more. He's not satisfied. And that doubt is a good thing. It's an honest recognition that there is always more that you can do that you recognize that what you put your confidence in, it is never enough. 
Whether it's the description on the yard sign or whether it is your own standards, we fail miserably. And so it's right for you to doubt in your own ability. Martin Luther is a great example of someone who believed that he lived a life without reproach. He writes, if ever a monk got to heaven by monkery, I would have gotten there. And yet Luther was engulfed in doubt and fear that he had not done enough, that he had not asked forgiveness enough. And he writes, I torment myself to death to procure peace with God for my troubled heart and my agitated conscience. But I was surrounded by horrible darkness and could find peace nowhere. Luther was right to doubt himself, and likewise, so should you, and we'll see why. Secondly, you are condemned by God's word. This is why it's right to doubt ourselves. You are condemned by God's word. The rich young ruler has doubts. He wonders if he's done enough, but he is also deluded about the seriousness of his situation. Maybe you go to the mechanic and you say, there's something up with my car. It doesn't sound right. It's not running smoothly. And your mechanic responds, you are dead right. That car shouldn't be on the road. You're a danger to yourself and to everyone else on the road. And so he condemns your car. Well, that's what Jesus is doing to this rich young man. Jesus picks up on something that he says. He describes Jesus as good. Now, we use the word good all the time. We say, have a good day, or we had a good time with friends, or we just had a good lunch. But for the Jews, they would not have used this word so frivolously. Goodness that only refers to God. Jesus is good. In one sense, the man is right to call Jesus good. Jesus is God. But did the man really see Jesus as God? Or instead, did he have a flawed view of goodness? Well, God sets the standard of goodness in his law. And so it's no wonder that Jesus texts this man to the law to help him understand what the true standard of goodness is. And Jesus tests him against the Ten Commandments. And we see that Jesus specifically tests him against the second half of the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments are to do with God, while the the last six are to do with your behavior to your neighbor. And the man responds, yes, I have kept all these commands. I've kept them since I was a boy. And sadly, we see this man, he only understood the commandments in a superficial way. That's why he called Jesus good. He called anyone good who kept the law to the standard that he held it to. Ferguson writes, he was blind to what he was really like inside. And this isn't unusual. The Apostle Paul spoke of himself in a similar way to the rich young man when he said, concerning the righteousness which is the law, blameless. And this view is particularly common among religious types. Many churchgoers are delusional, just like this rich young man. They describe themselves as good, as keeping the law. But the truth is, they're far from keeping the law. And this delusion is so prevalent in our culture that our world is now afraid to speak the truth because it might offend someone. So consider TV shows like American Idol or Britain's Got Talent. They're full of contestants who are deluded, but they've been told over the years, you are the best singer, 
you are going to make it big. And the result is, they're full of confidence until Simon Cowell tells them the truth, that they're not the best singer and destroys their dreams. He condemns their talent or lack of. And in a similar way, the law of God, it condemns us. That's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he helped the crowds understand the law compared to the religious leaders who were teaching a superficial explanation of how to keep the law. Jesus pointed to if you were angry with your brother, well, you had committed murder. You, if you lusted after someone, you had committed adultery with them. And so Jesus is teaching a deeper understanding of the law that it occurred, sin begins in the heart. You've broken God's law when these desires are present in your heart. So recognize that the law of God condemns you too, for you too have broken every commandment. Well, thirdly, you need to see the sin in your heart, verses 21 to 22. This man was sincere in his interests, but he was blind to his real need. And no wonder Jesus is described as loving him. In his love, Jesus helps this man see his real need. He tells him, go sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. And then you will have treasure in heaven. Jesus is speaking tenderly. He is like a doctor revealing to his patient the bad news. Now, Jesus is not saying that all Christians are to sell everything and give to the poor, but he is speaking specifically into this young man's life. He's telling him that he is dependent on his wealth, on his riches. Jesus is revealing to him that he's actually broken the first commandment. You are to have no other gods before me. Clearly, wealth was a god to this young man. And so Jesus' words were like a knife to this man. It revealed to him the sin that was in his heart. It revealed to him where his trust lay before he was in denial. But Jesus told him to walk away from his wealth. And when he knew that he could not do that, he also knew that it was in his wealth that he had placed his trust. He couldn't do without it. He loved his money more than he loved God. And so the man went away sad, for he could not leave it behind. In Lord of the Rings, the owner of the ring, whether it was Gollum, whether it was Bilbo, they start using words and language like, my precious. This was their love for the ring, that the ring and the power that the ring gave them. And it's been described as a morbid covetousness. The very thing they loved was the thing that was killing them. And likewise, for this rich young man, his wealth would be his undoing. McCoy, in his devotional, speaks of how people in India have to deal with monkeys. That's the pests, the local pests or monkeys. And so they would try and remove them. And one way of removing them was uh, the locals, they'll set up a trap, uh, which would be a banana, in a jar. And the jar is attached to the ground somehow. And the jar is just wide enough for the monkey to get his hand in, but while holding on to the banana, his hand is now too big, and I suppose also the, the banana itself, he can no longer get it out of the jar. Now, all the monkey has to do is let go, and then he'll be free. But the monkeys won't let go. Even when they see their trapper coming, they won't let go. They can't let go. 
They want that banana too much, even when the banana will seal their fate. Well, in the same way, this rich young man, he would not leave his wealth. He could not imagine leaving his riches behind to follow Jesus, even though Jesus is promising him treasures in heaven, which is another way of saying receiving the kingdom or being saved. He would not do it. Ferguson writes, this man stands as a perpetual monument to the fact that if we have everything but have not Christ, we ultimately have nothing. Christianity Explored uses an illustration of a robber going up to a rich man, holds up a gun to him and shouts, your money or your life. The rich man says nothing. And the robber shouts louder, your money or your life. And the rich man replies, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. Your money or your life, it's a no-brainer. But for the rich man, he chooses his money. What would you choose? What would be the one thing that you would not let go of? Is it money? Or is it a particular lifestyle, a sinful lifestyle? Is it academic recognition? Or is it pressure from your peers? Is it family traditions? Or is it respect from leadership in your life? There are many things that we want to hold on to, but only Christ will offer you treasure in heaven. These other things are sinful idols that have captured your heart. So do you see the sin in your heart? Well, fourthly, notice your money cannot save you, but God can. Verses 23 to 27. So while there are many things that we are tempted to put our trust in, wealth is surely the greatest. And it's no wonder that Jesus spoke often on the dangers of wealth. And yet it's one a subject that we as a church, we can be guilty of ignoring. And so it's important that we heed these words of Jesus. This conversation that Jesus had with this rich young man, it had an impact on those around him, particularly the disciples. And Jesus summed it up by saying, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. We read of the disciples responding with astonishment. That's because they were thinking, or the thinking of that time was that if you were rich, well, then you had God's favor. If you were wealthy, it's because you'd earned God's blessing in some way. And so they believed in a type of prosperity gospel. And so Jesus repeated himself by saying how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. And he then gave this famous phrase that it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, there is some interpretation that this refers to a particular gate in Jerusalem called the Needle Gate, and that camels would only squeeze through this gate if they removed all the baggage that they were carrying. Well, there's no proof to this. No, I think it's to be taken literally. Jesus is using humor. He's using exaggeration to make his point memorable, that it's impossible for such things to happen. We use the phrase, a snowball's chance in hell, to mean it will not be successful. Well, likewise, no camel will successfully get through the eye of a needle. No rich person will enter heaven. Too often, our thoughts are consumed with being rich. Money would enable me to do this or that. 
I would have greater control over my life or I would have greater power. And we look to money to solve our problems. That's often the government's solution to problems. Throw more money at it and hope the problem goes away. And often it only makes it worse. Well, wealth is not to be seen as a security. Instead, you're to see wealth as a danger. And it's a danger to each one of us. When we compare ourselves to others, especially compared to the rest of the world, we are very wealthy. We have a lot. And so this danger is real to every one of us. Paul speaks to Timothy of the dangers of money in 1 Timothy 6, where he writes, My godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So beware the danger of money. It will not save you. Instead, it will be a snare to you. Well, the disciples ask, who then can be saved? They assume that wealth meant that you are right with God. Well, how can you inherit eternal life? How can you have treasure in heaven? Well, it's back to the man's original question. And Jesus sums it up by saying, with men, it is impossible, but not with God. With God, all things are possible. Now, this passage stands in sharp contrast to our passage last week when Jesus speaks of children entering or receiving the kingdom. Children receive the kingdom because they come empty-handed. They come trusting in God, for in him all things are possible. The rich and the wealthy, they do not receive the kingdom because they come with their hands full of wealth. They're trusting in their wealth and not in God. Scrivener writes, it is impossible for, from the human side of things, we are lumbering camels and heaven is as open as a pinprick. But the view from God's side is very different. Today, forget the earthly striving and believe in God's impossible possibility. If we come as those who are full, heaven's gates are as narrow as a needle's eye. And if we come as little children, they are as wide as the arms of Jesus. So beware the dangers of wealth. It has incredible power to blind you and keep you from God. It cannot save you. Instead, you are to come trusting in what God has done for you. And so Jesus is answering the man's question. It's not what I can do. Instead, it's what God has done. With man, it is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Ferguson writes, Jesus meant that eternal life not only has God as its goal, it has God as its source and beginning. And so only he can give it. And that's what makes Christianity unique from all other religions. All other religions teach you, you must do this or you must do that. Christianity, it teaches you that it is done. Christ has done it all. And this is evident when on the cross he said, it is finished. It's complete. So put your trust in God and not in your money. 
Well, fifthly, notice that you are to recognize that you are rich even now. You're rich even now. Now remember, the problem isn't money itself. There are lots of wealthy people in the Bible. It's not wrong to have money or wealth, but you're to see the dangers of money. And this is evident when you hold onto your money and not give it over to God. When you're unwilling to surrender your wealth to God and to his priorities. Jesus writes, or Jesus says in Matthew 6, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If God is your treasure, then you will look at your wealth in a different way. You will see it as a gift from God, and you will use it for his glory and not your own. And this is seen every time you give of your wealth, whether it's in your tithing, whether it's in your giving to charity, or in your hospitality, or in your your generosity to other people. Peter points to the sacrifice that he made when he blurts out, we have left all and followed you. How does Jesus respond? Well, he recognizes the many sacrifices that his followers have had to make, whether it's leaving houses or family or lands. But he also reminds them that they will receive 100 times more. And he's not simply speaking about blessing in heaven. No, he says, now on earth, at this time, there is much to gain. (coughs) Anything that they have lost, they will regain, and they'll gain it 100-fold. But there are a couple of things to note here. It is interesting how Jesus makes no mention of gaining fathers. Uh, They won't gain fathers. And it's been suggested that is because you now have a father, a heavenly father, who is all-sufficient. The other thing to notice is that you will gain persecution. Persecution is normal for the believer, and it's seen as a blessing. It's not that we seek out persecution, but in being persecuted... It keeps you from the temptations of the world. So where on earth are all these blessings to be found? Well, it's in your church family. So Jesus is not speaking of receiving 100-fold in terms of material prosperity. Your earthly treasure is the fact that you now have this spiritual family. You may have had to leave your family, but you gain a new family. You may have to leave your home, but now you're welcome in many homes. McCartney writes, one house gone, but 100 doors open. One brother in the flesh lost, but a thousand brothers in the spirit, whose love is deeper, whose kinship is profounder. That's the case for each one of you here. You're part of a new family. You should not find yourselves in need, for you are surrounded by those who love you and who care for you. Even financially, if you find yourselves in need, you have support here in the church. The church has a fund, the Benevolence Fund, to help those who are in need. And if you find yourself in need, speak to one of the deacons about how they can help you with that, with that fund. So this is the great blessing that we enjoy, even treasures here on earth. These are the spiritual blessings you enjoy now. 
So this is the upside-down world of God's kingdom. It's no wonder Jesus said the first will be last, the last will be first. Normally, it's the rich who are at the front of the line, the poor who are at the back. But now in the kingdom, the rich find themselves last, and those who recognize their poverty are first. And this is all the work of Jesus Christ. He himself was rich, and yet, for your sake, he became poor. Paul speaks of this in 2 Corinthians 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And so it is through Christ that you receive God's kingdom, both treasures in heaven and true treasures here on earth. And so recognize what you have in Christ. And as a result, wealth will lose its importance to you. No longer will you look to wealth to rescue you. Instead, you will be content to look to Christ, who gave away everything to rescue you. An example of one who willingly gave it all up to follow God is that of Moses. And Hebrew writes of, the book of Hebrews writes of this. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasure of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. And by faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. How could Moses do this? How could he leave the wealth of Egypt to spend 40 years as a shepherd in the wilderness, and then another 40 years leading God's people in the wilderness. Well, he believed in God, one who is more powerful, more wealthy than even the treasures of Egypt. In him he trusted. In him he would be rewarded. So you are to receive the kingdom of God, not by trusting in your wealth, but trusting in Jesus Christ. He alone will provide for you treasures in heaven and true treasures here on earth. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, this insight, this reminder of how wealth can be a snare to each one of us. Forgive us, Lord, when we put our trust in riches. Instead, Lord, that our trust would be in you. Help us, Lord, see our precarious position, that we are under condemnation by the law, and that it is only Christ who rescues us. It is only Christ who provides for us, both in this life and in eternity. And so, Lord, help us to use our wealth instead to your glory and protect us from its dangers, we pray. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please turn to Psalm 112b. Psalm 112b, that was our Psalm of the Month last month. And it's a psalm that speaks of the riches we have in God. For it is in God that we are truly blessed. So stand and sing these words, Psalm 112b. <laughs> 